You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, 2019 is upon us, and we have an exciting year ahead in the Hazard Ground Podcast, and we just hope you guys stay with us throughout the entire year as you guys have done so much. It's been an amazing run so far for this podcast, coming up on our two-year anniversary here in a couple of weeks. So we plan to have some big things going on this year, and our 100th episode is up and coming, so stay tuned for all that. Once again, remind you guys to follow us on all the uh, social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Also, go to our website, HazardGround.com, check out the sponsors page, click that tab, support all of the sponsors on the Hazard Ground Podcast, because they are the ones that help keep this podcast coming, keep the guests coming in, and have gotten us so much positive reviews on the work that we're doing here, not only within the veteran community, but beyond as well. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That stuff is so important. The more ratings and reviews we get, the bigger the show grows, the bigger guests we get, and of course, the more the Hazard Ground community grows and helping support veterans everywhere. All that said, once again, we'd just like to thank you guys, the listeners, for joining us each and every week. You guys are such a big part of what we do. We love the feedback. We love hearing from you guys, and we also love the support that you give to the Hazard Ground podcast and the Hazard Ground community. Enough of me talking, guys. Let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired Air Force four-star general. He is the former 14th Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and as a pilot in Vietnam, he earned the Silver Star and two Distinguished Flying Crosses. He was also an integral part of the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. He is General Retired Merrill McPeak here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. General, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Mark. Delighted to be here with you. An incredible career, sir. Uh, just unreal to have achieved that height. And again, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, it's like, wow, you know, there's only a select few people who ever put that title next to their name in the military. So certainly congratulations on an amazing career. But uh, I'm very curious to hear about your experience in Vietnam and what you did to be so decorated. But we always like to start back at the beginning and tell us how you got into the Air Force. Well, I was an ROTC uh, cadet at San Diego State College. Uh, I graduated there in the late 50s, uh, but following the Korean War, uh, ROTC was more or less uh, you know, mandatory at the state colleges, and uh, so I entered. In any case, I was a scholarship kid there and needed the money, and the ROTC paid a, a dollar a day. <laughs> so. Every three months, I got a check for 90 bucks, and uh, that was a godsend in those days to me. So, yeah, I, jo- I came through the ROTC and had no intention of making a career out of the Air Force. I uh, thought I'd get in and out, but my first assignment was to flying training, and I absolutely fell in love with uh, flying. And uh, so uh, and one thing led to another. The Air Force kept giving me... Uh, interesting work to do, and I ended up uh, 37 years later retiring. Yeah, and it works out that way. Um, why the Air Force as opposed to the Army or anything else? You know, the only ROTC we had at San Diego State was Air Force. Ah, okay. So you could uh, you could go with the Navy or with the Marines, but it was, uh, you know, not at the school. You had to drive across town to do it, that kind of thing. And I don't know where the nearest Army ROTC was, but... Uh, Anyway, the Air Force was there and uh, uh, paraded every Thursday, and so I joined up. 
you know, you, you mentioned the Korean War and you signed up after. Did you think at any point in time that you were going to have to serve in combat when you were going through ROTC? You kind of just figured that this was the, the, the kind of downtime in, in the world politic arena. Uh, I didn't really think about it. To tell you the truth, I had, uh, you know, when I graduated to go to flying school, you had to sign a contract with the Air Force to stay for three years. So that was my commitment. In fact, I was a distinguished graduate, what they called, of ROTC. So they offered me a regular commission, just like the ones they were giving then to academy graduates. And I turned it down and said, no, uh, uh, you know, give it to somebody who wants to make the service a career. Then when I went to flying training, I was a uh, distinguished graduate of pilot training. And they offered it to me again. And that time I took it because... I, you know, flying had become something sort of, you know, like addictive to me. So, uh, and it didn't really make any difference. You could be either regular or reserve on active duty, and it, it made no real difference. But I accepted a regular commission, uh, and uh, uh, therefore, at a pretty early moment, uh, you know, as a lieutenant, I entered the regular Air Force. And what was that like for you? Was that culture shock, life, lifestyle-wise? No, I was in a fighter squadron when it caught up with me. I graduated, as I say, I was a distinguished graduate. In those days, there weren't very many fighter assignments coming out of flying training. I think we had 40 guys in my class and uh, six fighter jobs. The rest went to SAC, you know, B-47s or KC-135s, chopper guys, something like that. So you had to be very high in your class. I had the first, the, the six fighter jobs went to the top six guys in my class. So I then was offered a regular commission, accepted it. And by the time the paperwork caught up with me, I was in my first squadron, an F-104 squadron out at uh, out in Southern California. And uh, it didn't make any difference. I mean, I went from reserve to regular and all it was was a change in my, you know, in my personnel file somewhere. Sure. I, I just continued flying uh fighter sorties in the F-104 every day. So, so what year is this? I'm just trying to put it in reference to Vietnam when it starts. Yeah, I got my wings in January of 1959. Okay. That's when I graduated. The same day that Fidel Castro uh, walked into Havana, Cuba, and right. kicked out the Batista government. So that happened on the same day. So, I mean, take me through this. You have to be about, what, 21, 22, 23 years old at this point in time? Yeah, 22, maybe. Okay. And so 1960 comes, Kennedy gets elected. I don't want to give everybody a history lesson, but we all know what the next two or three years led to at almost the height of the Cold War. Uh, You know, we're going through Bay of Pigs. We're going through the Cuban Missile Crisis. What is happening during your military career as this stuff is starting to unfold? Well, it was interesting because uh, we flew at a pretty high sortie rate in those years. Uh, I, I think 20 hours a month was uh, kind of the standard in a fighter squadron. That's maybe 14, 15 sorties a month. So you flew, and there were only 21 uh, duty days a month, so you flew just about every day. But I can remember when uh, the U-2 was shot down. Right. In Russia, this was when Eisenhower was still president, Gary Powers. 1952, right? Yeah, and okay. uh, we started flying more. <laughs> wow. I can remember very much the Cuban Missile Crisis and um, 
Were you guys no. on like the highest of alert then? I mean, was everybody like standing yeah. by waiting to get in an aircraft to go somewhere? Well, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I had been reassigned. I was in the UK in an F-100 squadron pulling what we call Victor Alert, which was with a nuclear weapon aboard the uh, aircraft. Oh, wow. And I was sitting there watching BBC on alert when Kennedy uh, made that speech in Chicago, looking very haggard. In fact, it turned out now we know, we know he was uh, ill at the time, uh, had influenza or something. But uh, so I was sitting there watching him talk about imposing a quarantine, you know, blockade around Cuba. Uh, there were at that, at that moment uh, Russian uh, boats headed for Cuba with more armaments, and I, you know, quietly got up and went back to the safe and got out my target puller. My my target at the time was Peenemund uh, in eastern Germany, which had a fighter regiment on it, 50 uh, MiGs, East German Air Force, and. Uh, uh, you know, I went back and did a little target study because it looked dead serious to me. Uh, but during the earlier uh, Cuban problems, I was at George, and uh, yeah, we did we did increase our sortie rate. So yeah, we took seriously these uh, major events in the Cold War, especially the Cuban Missile Crisis, which uh, was uh, <laughs> you know quite personal to me since I was sitting alert at the time. Yeah, I mean, I just, I can't imagine that daily life of not knowing what's next. I mean, look, in my lifetime, sir, you know, wars start because of some major impactful event, right? There's not like a lot of lead up and build up to it. It's, it's you know, as we go, it's, it's Pearl Harbor, it's 9-11, you know, these things are catalysts for war. But during that time, there was periods of weeks and months that any day this thing was a powder keg ready to explode, so, you know, every day getting out of bed, you you, you didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, it's really true. And, of course, for fighter crews in Europe, where, where I was during the, these, uh, those years, uh, 60, 63, 4, 5, uh, until I joined the Thunderbirds, I, I came back and uh, got involved flying air shows with the Thunderbirds in 67 and 68. But anyway, in those years, you spend a lot of time on alert. I mean, you just disappear behind a fence and your family. I mean, my family was there in the UK with me, but you'd go to on alert and, and stay there for three, four five days, come out and then you'd be off for a couple of weeks. So it was a more or less constant uh, hair trigger situation on both sides. I don't know why they did it on the Soviet side, but on our side, we were ready to go. I mean, we're supposed to launch, be off the ground, airborne, gear up with a nuclear weapon carried center line in 15 minutes from uh, sleeping, you know, a cold start in bed in the alert facility. So, wow. yeah, th there was that, that kind of continuous uh, pressure. Now, you say wars start with a precipitous event. Well, Vietnam didn't. <laughs> right, yeah. So, so there was a very long buildup to our involvement in Vietnam and during some of that time, <clears throat> I was a flying solo pilot with the Thunderbirds so, uh, and worried that I wasn't going to get to the war, that the war would be over before I got there. <laughs> it's so funny, you know. So we talked to so many people on the podcast, and he even said this about the global war on terror. Like, everyone's like, oh, I, we thought it was going to be over. We were afraid it was going to be over. And, right. and here we sit, you know, nearly 20 years later in the global war on terror in Vietnam. You know, technically from start to finish was about 20 years. It's like, everybody's going to get their turn. There's no reason to rush to this thing. 
Um, but that said, so, you know, I mean, you know, Vietnam, we, we had advisors there in the mid 50s into the late 50s. And then, you know, once Kennedy takes a hold of, of, of becomes president, you know, that's when he starts to kind of raise things. At what point in time do you shift to start to move to Southeast Asia? Well, I think the key events, uh, well, first of all, regarding Kennedy's involvement, I think he was very much, uh, you know, he was his, he loved the special forces. The Green Berets were his kind of guy. And so the involvement from a standpoint of special operations, training, uh, being on the ground to help the South Vietnamese armed forces, logistic support, intelligence support, I think he was all in on that. But it was really Johnson that made the initial right. uh, Big commitment of, of ground forces. Regular, you know, the first units were Marine Battalion, I think, landed up at Da Nang. But very shortly after, we had, uh, you know, regular combat forces in there in 67, 68. And of course, we had Tet came along in January 68. That was a sort of a highlight of the war. Now, I was flying air shows at the time. And um, so I didn't get it to Vietnam until the end of 68. I actually flew my first combat sortie on uh, Boxing Day, uh, December 26th, and my last air show in November uh, of 68. So uh, to get the family resettled and to go to jungle survival training and to uh, get requalified in all the munitions events and so on, and to get there, and then when you get there, you got to spend three or four days going through the ground uh, indoctrination and so on. So to fly my first sortie on December 26th was very, very <laughs> meant I didn't waste any time. I was very anxious to get involved and and uh, got there as quick as I could. So what sort of missions were you flying in Vietnam? Was it just ground cover with these kind of, you know, uh, you know, attack missions. Give me the nature of the work, sir. Yeah, attack is a good uh, description. It was close air support. Uh, I was stationed first at Phuket and Three Corps, which are about on the same uh, parallel with um, Kontum and uh, the Central Highlands. Uh, and uh, so I started just doing close air support, which you. You, you know, take off, go find a forward air controller. They mark a target. The forward air controller is working with the Army. I mean, belongs to the battalion commander that he's uh, working with. They mark a target. You expend munitions and you go back home and land. So uh, that was the, the mission that I started in on. By that time I got there, late 68, most of the real fighter pilots had been and, and gone back. So the squadrons were uh, full of uh, guys who were training command instructor XIPs or even some uh, transport pilots, C-130 guys who were cross-trained over into fighters because we'd run out of fighter pilots. So guys coming out of the Pentagon, the staff somewhere, or guys like me who had been in a two-year controlled assignment, I couldn't uh, leave the Thunderbirds. I mean, it's a <laughs> you know it's a six-man air show. And so I, I couldn't get out of it for the two years that I was in it. So by the time I arrived there, they were pretty short of of career fighter pilots. And I had been a gunnery instructor, uh, uh, had served in squadrons in both the U.S. and uh, abroad. 
I had two years of, uh, you know, flying air shows, which people thought was pretty good training. So uh, I very rapidly became a, uh, went from being a wingman to being a leader, flight leader, instructor pilot. And by, you know, early January, I was checking out the new guys when they came in. And then the reason I go through all this is because I moved to a different job out of the close air support business, I uh, was asked to go up and uh, uh, take a leadership role in a squadron called MISTI. It didn't really have a number, wasn't a regular squadron uh, because it was doing highly classified work, classified at the time, not classified any longer, so I can talk about it, but we were flying into Laos and we were forward air controllers, so I wasn't actually, you know, taking off and finding a fact and working. I was the fact. I took off and fact for uh, people coming over to Laos to try to stop traffic down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So that was a change. I was no longer doing really close air support. I was doing interdiction, trying to stop traffic down uh, that trail. And uh, so I took over Misty first as the number two man, the ops officer, and then as a commander, and flew uh, 98 uh, sorties uh, uh, with, uh, with the Misty Facts, which turned out to be very interesting work, the most uh, uh, interesting work I did over there. And Why was that? Well, because um, a lot of in-country sorties, we called it trees in contact. I mean, that's a, a bastardization of a term, troops in contact. Now, troops in contact is very interesting work. You're going out and supporting our little green guys on the ground, and they are actually shooting at somebody. Right. So uh, that means you're doing, you're helping, you know. I mean, when it's a real troops in contact situation, everybody wants to go show up and support the Army, do close air support. But what, mostly what we called it was trees in contact because they weren't, <clears throat> we weren't in contact with anybody. The, you know, the battalion commander was given a certain number of sorties per day, and uh, the fact put him in on the most interesting trees he could find. You know, there might be somebody under one of those trees kind of deal. Sure. So it was kind of a waste of time. <clears throat> and <clears throat> uh, But going over to Laos, and finding traffic on the Ho Chi Minh Trail and stopping it, that was really helpful. I mean, that was, and by the way, you were sort of the guy in charge. And it was one of those, it was a mission type order situation, which is perfect. And nobody down in Saigon was telling you how to do it. You know, the, the mission was stop traffic. We don't care how you do it. Go over there. If you find traffic, shoot it up, you know, stop it. And that's what we did. Uh, and, and by the way, it was a little more dangerous because there was uh, it wasn't just small arms fire and automatic weapons over there. Well, like what you had in the south, you had some AAA, and uh, so it. And anybody shot down in Laos was not going to be recovered. I mean, we lost a couple hundred aviators over there, and uh, almost none of them uh, ever came back. Uh, Take nobody... me through that for a second, sir, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, uh, when you talk about the danger of these missions, is, is 
dealing with troops in contact and close air support less dangerous necessarily than the the idea of just you know halting traffic down the Ho Chi Minh Trail or whatever it may be? What's what's the level of the difference here? Well, I can't talk about all close air support situations because they're individual. Right. I mean, in close air support in Korea, uh, for instance, I mean, the fire support coordination line was moved back to like 100 meters or something. I mean, our guys were really, when the Chinese intervened in Korea, that made close air support, I think, a different kind of thing than what we did in Vietnam. And more dangerous. But in Vietnam, by and large, now a lot of planes were shot down in Vietnam. Don't get me wrong. I think the Army lost like a thousand helicopters during yeah. that period. Now, the helicopter is a, is a particularly vulnerable uh, target because of its, uh, you know, it's a noisy thing. You're not going to surprise anybody. And it's going pretty slow. So, uh, but we lost a lot of fighters in, in South Vietnam. So you can't say that it was uh, risk-free to go out and do close air support. But I thought it was uh, pretty easy. Uh, uh, not, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't concerned about the risk in the South. In uh, Laos, I always kept my speed up because there you did have AAA uh, mostly small caliber stuff when I was there, but 23 millimeter AAA is really a good gun. I think it's a Czech design. Uh, Russians manufactured it, but that is a gun. Now, you know, 37, 57 came in later, and I never really saw any 37, 57, but 57 is shot with a four round clip. So the guy, the gunner drops four rounds in, fires them, and then he's done. You know, he has to reload. And you'll see that, you'll see the little puff marks when those shells self-destruct. And if there's four of them, you know it's 57. If it's five, it's 37, because 37 has a five-round clip. Now, the 23-millimeter gun has got a 50-round can. And usually, you're looking at a twin-barrel situation. So the guy can fire 100 rounds at you, uh, you know, before he has to put a new can on the gun. That's a, that's a pretty dense fire. And so I always considered the 23 millimeter their, their best AAA gun. And there was a lot of 23 over in Laos. So, uh, you know, the, the defense against it is you got to go fast. So whenever I saw the airspeed drop below 500 knots, I was right into afterburner. The, the F-100 was sustained 100, uh, 500 knots low on the deck at full full power, you know, full what we call full military power. But we were also doing a, a weave or a jink to, to uh, continuously to uh, spoil any uh, tracking solution that the gunner has on the ground. Sure. And if you, if you jink hard enough, you're going to knock the airspeed down below 500. So uh, basically, I was in and out of afterburner all the time. The, the sorties over there were four plus hours long, and that meant you had to go back to the tanker and refuel twice uh, because it was, uh, you know, pretty uh, spendy expenditure of uh, fuel to keep your speed up over there. Was that too long in your opinion or no? Uh, 
It was. Yeah, I mean, above, given the nature of the, of the of the enemy on the ground and what we what you were flying up against, was it too long? No. Okay. It wasn't too long. But look, if you get up two hours before launch and go down to the squadron and get your intelligence briefing and all the rest of that stuff, and get the airplane. Uh, I mean, and then at the end of the sortie, you got to go through another two-hour intelligence briefing. I mean, it's an all-day thing to fly one four-and-a-half-hour sortie. Okay. And, uh, you know, we had a 100-mission limit uh, in, Mich- in MISTI, uh, but it was, that's 25 and a four-month limit. It was considered one of those, uh, you know, first of all, there was everybody was a volunteer. So we took volunteers from the F-100 wings all over the theater. You go to the wing at Da Nang and a wing at the Fan Rang and so on, Tuiwa. All those guys sent, they kept four pilots up at Phuket from each of those wings. And those guys were, were specially self-selected. You had to have 100 sorties to get into Misty. And then we were pretty picky about who we took. So we, you know, we had a special group of guys there. In fact, we just had a reunion out here in Oregon. I, I got the squadron all together and brought them all out here. Some pretty famous guys. Uh, my, I was, of course, I ended up being the chief of the Air Force. And my successor, Ron Fogelman, the 15th uh, Air Chief, was a MISTI. That worked for me when I was uh, commander of the, of the squadron. Wow. And... Uh, Oh, there's a you know uh, just a, a a lot of famous people. Our first commander, Bud Day, got the Medal of Honor. He was shot down, and uh, spent some time in in Hanoi. A long time, you know, five or six years in Hanoi, and got the Medal of Honor. So it was a famous squadron. Dick Rattan was in it. He's a guy that ran, uh, flew around the world on one tank of gas. His brother Bert Rutan designed that uh, Voyager that uh, did that, won the Collier Trophy for a round-the-world flight without landing on one tank of gas. Uh, anyway, so we had a lot of va- famous guys, very special people who got in that squadron, and, <clears throat> and it was because that was the way that F-100 pilots could kind of participate in the outcountry war. Otherwise, F-100 guys. Uh, did all the sorties, uh, you know, close air support in country. I, I said it was a hundred mission limit, and since I was doing the scheduling, I should have got to a hundred. But we moved the uh, squadron from Phuket down to Tuiwa uh, at the end of my four-month period, and uh, so I I was at 98 sorties when we got down there, and the the uh, guy I went to work for fired me. So I only got to 98, which is one uh-huh. of the things that irritates me to this day. <laughs> no, there's, uh, you know, it would be nice to say I flew 100 uh, sorties, but I only got 98. Very few Misty's actually got it. Sure. Sorties, because it's hard to do it in four months. What are some of the most memorable missions that you went on? Um, again, I, you know, I... I'm not asking you to kind of like brag, but I know you're awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross twice and the Silver Star. I mean, do these missions stick out to you or no? No. The ones that I got decorated for were kind of routine. Really? Uh, yeah. They're, uh, but I can remember a couple of missions I didn't get <laughs> decorated for. i just tell you a couple stories. It's kind of war stories, so I apologize about it, but... Uh, I remember one time we had a gunner on the side of a cliff. We called him the gutsy gunner. He had to be a Laotian, Paffet Lao guy, not 
MDA because the, the regular North Vietnamese army was highly disciplined and they would only shoot at you if you were going after a target that they were supposed to defend. Otherwise they kept guns tight over there. But this guy, so I think this guy was Paffet Lao because he shot every time. And, the, and he thought he was pretty well camouflaged where uh, he was on the side of a cliff, cliff side, his gun position. But, it, but if you flew at that cliff, there was a stratum of rock that looked like a little finger and it pointed right at him. He was right at the end. He was kind of where the fingernail would be on that rock. Now, he didn't have 23 millimeter. He had a, a, what we call the zip gun, CPU. ZPU is a, is a machine gun kind of like our 50 caliber. And it can be mounted as a single or a double, or there's even a quad configuration where you put four barrels in a, in a square shape. And so when we got a new Mystic pilot in the, in, the, uh, in the squadron, we'd stick him in the back seat of an F-100F and we'd fly by this cliff and, you know, bank up, and look, I'd say, look at right at the end of that stratum of rock. And there'd be that gunner firing. And you could see the four, you know, muzzle flashes of this uh, quad zip, quad ZPU. And so they were real easy to see. And, and because he always shot right at us, he never led us. So if you went by him going 500 knots, you know, and he's shooting right at your canopy, that's safe as uh, being in bed because all those bullets right. are going to be be behind you. Mm-hmm. So he, he knew nothing about lead for target motion, and he was a reliable shooter. He just loved to shoot. So we used him as a training aid. You know, we'd we'd roll up up and look at the camp and say, "Now that's quad ZPU. See that?" And the guy say, "Yeah, that's great," because most guys you get they come to you from squadrons in in South Vietnam and they got no experience with. Uh, heavy or and for us to recognize the caliber of a gun and report it properly when we got back was important so we had ways of trying to train a guy to say okay that's zpu that's 23 millimeter etc so uh <clears throat> we we left the guy alone he was a reliable training guy and we we used him and then one day the weather was just lousy all over Oh, Laos, except there was a little, you know, sucker hole, some blue sky right over the top of this guy. So I called, uh, Hillsborough was dumping fighters on me. Hillsborough was the airborne command and control that would uh, make contact with the incoming fighters and then hand them off to you so that you could control them and, uh, you know, put them in on targets. And the weather was bad all over the place, so they, they had lots of fighters with uh, munitions that they didn't, uh, you know, all the rest of the targets were close. So I said, okay, send them on over here. And so I started, I said, I'm, I was felt sorry about it because we were going to lose my training aid here, but he was the only, he was happened to be located right the only place where the weather was good. So I marked him and we started bombing the guy. And uh, <laughs> we must have put, you know, three or four, four ship flights in on this guy some of them with 2,000-pound bombs. Wow. So there's no doubt that this guy uh, who thought we were sitting there fat, dumb, and happy for months on the trail 
and uh, you know got no activity and all of a sudden you know all hell breaks loose i marked that guy with marking rockets a 2.75 folding fin rockets you know white phosphorus uh, warhead in the in, in the nose i must have marked him 10 12 times he shot at me every time i marked him at the end of the day when i was all done i flew by and he shot at me again we never got that guy. I mean, uh, that uh, our bombing was so was you know not that accurate. I mean, our average miss distance in Vietnam for all bombs dropped was probably 300 meters. Really? Which was the reason why we went to work on precision guided munitions. Yeah. The, Viet, the Vietnam generation brought you stealth because of the losses up around Hanoi running against uh, radars. It brought you precision-guided munitions, and it brought you night capability, which we didn't have before. All of us came back from that war and went to work on the on what we knew we needed to correct, and, and we corrected it. I mean, I was chief during Desert Storm, and we saw the beginning. I mean, only, uh, well, less than 10% of the munitions dropped during Desert Storm were guided, but they are the ones that did the, the heavy lifting, and we all saw that. So, And we used the F-117, first stealth fighter in Desert Storm. And we operated at night. We kicked the operation off at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. something like that. And all of those were lessons learned from Vietnam for us. So we came back, and my generation fixed. Anyway, so that this guy was gone the next day because I went up the next day and looked. And he he didn't shoot at me, so he moved. He knew he'd been found out. But that's that was a, I always, always thought we should give that guy a medal. <laughs> so he he's the guy that should get the distinguished flying cross because he was he was a perfect uh, training aid for us, and he was a gutsy guy. He always shot. He just needed a little training about you know how to do the shooting. The problem with uh, a guy like that is. If you're marketing, in other words, you roll in, point the nose at him, you fire a, a Willie Pete a marking rocket at him, he doesn't have to solve the lead for target motion problem anymore because your nose on headed right at him. So the marking guns is a, is a thing I never really enjoyed very much because you've got to roll in, track the target just momentarily, fire the rocket, and quickly... <laughs> break left or right because he you you solved his problem if you stay nose on for him very long and so mark and even that guy who wasn't very skillful you know six or seven times was uh interesting work and um uh anyway i uh luckily you know he uh, the only time i ever got hit was over in laos and it wasn't with a machine gun like a zip it was small arms fire so uh, anyway, that was, that guy I got a lot of uh, enormous respect for. We we missed him after that. You know, the guy we'd gotten used to having him around. Interesting stuff, sir, to say the least. Um, let's kind of fast forward uh, towards the end of Vietnam when the whole thing ends and you're done. Um, I guess twofold question: Do you know what's next for you for your career? But also more of a uh, when everybody returned home, I asked this of a lot of Vietnam vets. Um, how did you feel about the way you guys were treated upon coming home? Well, I, 
I was treated very well. You know, I have heard a lot of stories about bad treatment. In fact, I don't know if you saw the, the uh, Ken Burns. I was going to ask you about board. that. Yeah. Yeah, I was in that. And, and I was a technical advisor to him. And I was in four of the ten. I personally was appeared in four of the ten uh, episodes. But uh, uh, and there's some things in there from veterans saying how badly they were treated when they got back and so forth. It never happened to me. Uh, I maybe I was running with the wrong crowd. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. But uh, I was treated very well. You know, when I got back, I went to the uh, staff college, the Armed Forces Staff College in Norfolk. And uh, so that was a nice break after the war. And then I went to the Pentagon for three years. Uh, and I was treated very well everywhere I went. After that, I was stationed in New York City itself, downtown, uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations for an academic year. And I uh, sometimes had to wear my uniform. Uh, on the subway, I rode the subway from uh, where I lived to, to the council's uh, headquarters in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And uh, I'll tell you, people would, when I had my uniform on, people would get out of the way and uh, smile at me. And these are New Yorkers. I mean, it's supposed to be, you know, the bastion of <laughs> anti-war liberalism, but... Uh, People were very respectful and very nice to me. So I had a positive experience. Now, we didn't have any victory parades after Vietnam, but, you know, if you're going to have a victory parade, you got to begin by having a victory. And uh, we lost Vietnam. We never lost a battle in Vietnam. We acquitted ourselves well when we were there, or reasonably well, for a long time. I mean, towards the end, there was some fragging of officers and NCOs and some dope use and some race problems and so on with uh, the Army. Uh, uh, but in general, we, we weren't defeated militarily. We just lost the war because the politics of it was, uh, was wrong. Sure. The, uh, one well, was tempted to say almost corrupt. Uh, certainly, they were corrupt in Saigon, uh, but I also thought that uh, our Washington leadership pretty much kitted itself, especially Johnson and Nixon, and uh, allowed a lot of people, a lot of dead bodies to pile up instead of just admitting, you know, okay, guys, we, you know, we screwed it up. We made a mistake. Let's get out of here, which, in my judgment, is what should have happened uh, years before it did it finally did happen i mean essentially we finally we had a fig leaf you know uh of uh, leaving uh, with our head held high but we knew and everybody knew that saigon's days were numbered as soon as we left uh, you know we left the theater so uh what wh where did your career go from here i mean I, you leave vietnam as a major correct Yes. Okay. So what's next? And I mean, at what point in time do you realize that like, Hey, I'm going to be a general one day. Well, I never thought I was going to be a general. I mean, uh, uh, certainly not for a very long time. I, uh, went to the Pentagon and got promoted twice in, uh, <laughs> below the zone, uh, to Lieutenant Colonel and to Colonel. In fact, I was wearing, 
my silver lieutenant colonel uh, oak leaves for four months when I came out on the colonel list. Wow. That's a re- <laughs> the reason, you know, I got handed a hot potato in the Pentagon, and so I spent a lot of time in front of the chief of staff and senior officers, and um, I guess I didn't screw it up. So I got promoted too quickly, really, because I never – I should have been, spent a little more time as a lieutenant colonel, including hopefully, you know, command of a regular squadron, right. which I never had. I had command of that misty outfit, but it wasn't a regular squadron. Anyway, so then they didn't know what to do with me. And I I went through, I spent uh, eight years as a colonel uh, w- with eight different PCS assignments. And uh, none of them very good until I got to the last one, which was to command a fighter wing in the, in NATO. Again, uh, with a nuclear weapons, uh, you know, Victor Alert uh, mission. Uh, and once I got that wing commander job, that gave me a shot at being general because uh, uh, wing commanders are the, a rich source of of. Uh, you know, general officer material. Right. But until right. I got that wing, I had some pretty bad jobs as a colonel. I mean, uh, really bad, including spending nine months at the Council on Foreign Relations after having graduated from the National War College. So that's kind of two tours in a, a, of scholarship, which nobody needs if they're going to be a, you know, a general. Or that's that's the way I felt about it. So, yeah, I eventually uh, got a good job, which was running the 20th Fighter Wing, and I got to keep it for 16 months, which is not long enough, because I got promoted to one star. And uh, <laughs> then, I, they, you know, they, they made me leave. They really like you in the Air Force, huh? No, right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, um, how does the process go for being named Chief of the Air Force? Well, uh, the, the Secretary of the Air Force uh, uh, talks to the Chief of Staff, and uh, they decide what, you know, we had at the time, we had 12 four-star generals in the Air Force. That was our quota. And those 12 guys, you'd say, you know, there's probably half of them are, are getting ready to retire. Uh, so, I mean, that's the pool from which you're going to pick your, your chief as those four-star generals. And the chief will sit down with the secretary, at least, uh, my experience. I mean, it can be done a lot of different ways, I expect. And they talk about who these guys are and who's young enough to serve another four years and what their experience has been and what you think their leadership qualities are and so forth. And they make a recommendation to the secretary of defense. Uh, and the, that goes to the president. Now, <clears throat> in my case, there were a couple of us out of the 12 that were sort of finalists, Mike Dugan and I. Uh, Dugan and I had known each other for a long time. In fact, had been in squadron uh, over in the NATO together as lieutenants. And uh, the secretary came and interviewed me, went over to Europe. I was in command in the Pacific, and uh, Mike Dugan was in command in the in Europe. Uh, the secretary himself came, spent the night with us, had dinner, blah, blah, and uh, went back and Mike was nominated to be chief, Mike Dugan. So I lost in that contest. 
and uh, Mike took over in the uh, summer of uh, 1990. And uh, almost immediately, uh, Kuwait was invaded by Saddam Hussein, and uh, Desert Shield started, which was our reinforcement of Saudi Arabia. Right. And uh, towards the you know, fall, sometime after Mike had been chief for a couple months, he flew over there to look at how it was going. You know, our, our air forces were, our air force was fi- filing, you know, sending squadrons in every day. And on the way back, he had an interview on the airplane with some reporters and said some things that uh, he later wished he hadn't said. Uh, you know, that uh, this was going to be an air operation from beginning to end. Uh, we were going to win it. We were going to kill Saddam Hussein while he was sleeping and his mistress with him and, you know, stuff like that. Sort of fighter pilot talk. I agreed with all of it, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, when he got back, Colin Powell, who was chairman, was livid. Uh, Dick Cheney, who was Secretary of Defense, was very angry. They called Mike in Monday morning and fired him. Oh, man. And since, and since I had just come in second, you know, they and they needed an air chief right away. I mean, we were building up for war. Uh, Mike called me out in Honolulu, where my headquarters was, and said, better pack your adopt kit and get on in here. So I actually was named chief, I think, without uh, a lot of competition because we had just had a competition, you know. So I became the 14th uh, chief in uh, November of 90. And of course, there's still a couple months to go before uh, there's a storm broke out in, in January. I assume you weren't but, rushing to do any interviews at that point in time. <laughs> I kept my head down, but I had a good, <laughs> I, I had a good, uh, I went over to be uh, to uh, Saudi and flew seven sorties. I was still current in the F. 15. I'd been flying the F-15 out in Hawaii. With so wait, you're, you're the chief of the Air Force and flying missions in Desert Storm? No. No, I, fl- I went over to uh, Saudi and I flew seven sorties in the F-15 okay. before. No, I had to be in the Pentagon when uh, when it started. Gotcha. Okay. I think it started on the 23rd of January or something. So I was back by the by the 17th and uh, or so. And uh, in fact, the George H.W. Bush called me over to the Pentagon, and uh, I had lunch with him and Cheney uh, after I got back from uh, Saudi Arabia. And they, the, the uh, George H.W. Bush uh, wanted to. He said, I, "I hear you've been over there flying, you know, flying airplanes." Of course, he was a fighter pilot himself, and uh, so I said, "Yeah." He said, uh, what's going on? How are we doing? You know, we're ready to go. And at that time, there was just four of us at this lunch in the White House. There was Cheney, the president, uh, Brent Scrocroft, who was his national security advisor, and me. And so at the time, we had already delayed the kickoff of Desert Storm. And... uh, Colin Powell and others wanted to delay it some more because the army wasn't quite ready to go. You know, it takes a while for them to get in shape. I didn't care. 
you know, I said, let us start. I mean, the Eighth Air Force in, uh, in England in World War II didn't wait until D-Day to start bombing Germany, right? <laughs> so, That's a good point. So we could, we could start bombing anytime we wanted. But the Army was in love with this idea of synchronized, you know, action, synchronization, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, that's one of our, our, our key terms there, sir. We, we, we love synchronization. <laughs> well, okay, when you're ready, join in. But there's no sense, <laughs> us, no sense us giving uh, Saddam Hussein a free pass until you guys get ready to synchronize your watches. Okay, so anyway, the president asked me how I felt, and I said, uh, you know, my only worry is we started troops in or sending squadrons in in August and they've been doing wind sprints and push-ups you know for six months over there we're ready to go and, uh, uh, there's no reason why we should delay any longer let us get started on this so he looked at me and he said don't worry <laughs> which I thought was great so uh, we kicked off uh, you know a week or so later that's amazing war Air war lasted 39 days, and uh, you know, and then the when the army did join in, it was uh, like they, what they called the hundred-hour war. Yeah, I think that if you ask the Iraqis, they probably thought it lasted a little longer than a hundred hours. So, it, when you think back to that, is that surreal to sit in there and have that kind of conversation with the president? And especially as we record this here on December 4th, you know, he just passed a couple of days ago, George H.W. Bush did. I mean, you know, do those yeah. memories come, you know, flooding back to you? No. Although I was invited to come to uh, the capital Rotunda whenever they, they had a bunch of Vietnam guys there and to his uh, service at the National Cathedral. And I can't. I'm, I live out in Oregon now and I'm, I'm in business out here, so uh, I had to turn down those invitations. I will tell you this about George H.W. Bush. He was a wonderful guy, really, really good man. And uh, I thought a world-class, uh, you know, commander-in-chief. So I'm when I think about and Barbara, I like Barbara Bush a lot, uh, <laughs> that day... When I had lunch with him after coming back from Vietnam, I hadn't met the first lady because, you know, my hiring was uh, uh, a little different. I imagine when you're nominated to be a chief of staff, you go over and meet the president before he sends your nomination over to the Senate. I didn't do that. So I, I met the president that day for the first time. And he said, hey, have you met? You've never met Barbara Bush. I said, no. So she had been, uh, they'd been up to Camp David and she had fallen down on an icy sidewalk or something up there. And hadn't broken her leg, but uh, it hurt her and, and her leg was in a cast. So anyway, he takes me into their bedroom. Uh, you know, I'm saying to myself, nobody is ever going to believe this. He takes me into the bedroom. She's in her PJs, still in bed, pajamas, and her leg sticking out with the cast on it. And that's the way I... <laughs> That's the way I meet the first lady of the United States. <laughs> that is unreal. The president walks me into their bedroom and introduces me to Barbara Bush. But it was just natural. I mean, he, he, he had no pretense. What you saw was what you get, got. And, he, and what you got was a real uh, man, a gentle man. You know, not some uh, uh, 
braggart who uh, invents uh, uh, crises so he can uh, ride to the rescue or some of the other, you know, manifestations of the loss of dignity that we see in the White House today. That's that's incredible. Let me ask you about the the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. You touched on it before as you were an integral part of it. Uh, how did you feel like that documentary, you know, did justice or did you feel like it did justice to what went on in Vietnam and the people who were there and did did it really hit the right notes for you? Yes. I think it's great work or I wouldn't have stayed involved. I worked on it for five years. Oh, wow. And uh, I've been with Ken a lot in his place up in New Hampshire and uh, all over the place in the editing room time, you know, hours. I must have seen the thing 10 times. Uh, So, uh, and we formed a group called the War Room where we had a range of political opinions in there. We had a guy who was a leader in the protest movement against the war, Fred Zimmerman. We had Carl Morlantis, who won the Navy Cross uh, and wrote uh, the book uh, Matterhorn, mm-hmm. and others. Uh, so we would sit around and try to shoot holes in this thing and try to pick it apart from the standpoint of who's going to criticize this. And by the way, it has been criticized quite a bit from both the left and the right. You know, there's the people on the right who say we could have, would have, should have won. It was Walter Cronkite that uh, betrayed us. You know, if we just hug in there, blah, 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 we could have won. Then there's a criticism from the left that says, hey, the anti-war movement was right all along. And you guys should have listened to it. And you finally did, you know, but look at the, you stacked up 60,000 people on names on a wall in Washington. So there's there there's a range of views there, and I thought the documentary just told a story, good, bad, and indifferent, and a lot of it's bad, you know, but they told it truthfully, and it's the first time, by the way, we ever got interviews from the other side. Here, here you're interviewing a guy who is a senior Viet Cong guy, you know, right. or a Polit Politburo member in. In Hanoi, uh, I mean, uh, we never saw the the uh, war through the eyes of the other guy in the way that you see it in that documentary. So anyway, uh, yeah, I think it's a timeless document. A, it will be looked at 100 years from now as, uh, you know, uh, a pretty good rendering of the history and since i don't think young people read as much of their printed word as they used to that's correct they get their they get their history through a video that that documentary is going to have an enormous and lasting uh impact in my in my judgment well sir again just a phenomenal career uh what you have done and accomplished is nothing short of spectacular and uh, certainly, you've helped shape and, and mold not only the Air Force, but the military uh, for the future. And, and we can't thank you enough for that. But uh, just a, amazing to, to, to hear your story and, and understand what you've gone through and where you've been and, uh, and, and how you kind of just seem to take it all in stride as you've gone through 37 plus years uh, as, a, as a member of the Air Force. But certainly, thank you for your time. And we certainly appreciate you joining us. Okay, Mark. Nice talking to you, buddy. 
Uh, General McPeak, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Okay, cheerio. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.